0: This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Yeah,
1: yeah. Fundies called me up, told me to take a look, but stay as bulls talk that get, the money, get the money.
0: Get Get the money. Well, Nick Quinn, thanks very much for coming back on Talk Your Book. Uh, I'll apologise in advance about my uh, my voice on diggers and dealers, and I'd say so far diggers has uh, has got the best to me but um why don't we start with walking through spadium capital and a little bit about how you guys invest because i know it's a different strategy to to some of
1: the other funds uh we speak to yeah for sure so that's Spadium. we're a high turnover manager managing a book of about 30 to 40 businesses on average uh, and holding those businesses for about 30 to 45 days we maintain a low cash weight we don't have any sort of market timing uh preference we're fully invested at all times and uh and we believe that by buying businesses at the discounted end of their peer set and turning that process over quite frequently. Um, We stand to benefit during turbulent times when things fall. We we don't have those uh, overhyped darlings. We've we've got a pretty uh, concentrated book that holds its own when things turn sour, like we've seen over the last couple of years. And I know a
0: couple of guys in your fund that are there uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is the uh, the lack of correlation to the broader market due to the duration risk. Has it been less correlated than the, some of the other funds in the industry?
1: Definitely has been. Uh, one of the things that's hurt us recently is not being able to fly to cash, which some of the other small cap peers have been able to do and and do a bit of that market timing in, in probably the most exceptional uh, central bank reversion that we've seen possibly ever. But it's something we stayed convicted to, and, and again, something that's helped us along last month. Uh, the market delivered 11%. We delivered a 15% return. A lot of our peers delivered a 6 or a 7 or an 8 purely because they had uh, higher cash weightings or, or waiting to market time back in and got caught on the rebound after, obviously, some of the tax loss selling that we saw at the end of financial year 2022. So it's been an interesting period for us. Uh, the process is robust. We've kept it the same way the whole way through. Been around for four years now. Um, it's all kicking along together quite well.
0: And because it's more of a trading strategy with you guys, I thought it'd be best if we sort of did a broader market overview discussion then got into a, a few stocks that are, are on your watch list at the end. So to start with, in the Aussie market, what are you seeing between uh, the big cap stocks and the, the small cap
1: stocks that uh, that's uh, capturing your attention? For us, it's been an interesting period. We do have about 15% of our book in the top 100. We're not a purely small only Uh, Business, we are locked into the ASX 300 with 85% of our book hovering around 101 to 300. But over the last sort of 12 months, you've seen the top 100 fall uh, 10%, 11%, somewhere around thereabouts. And then the small cap region gets smashed 21 or 22%. Some of them having higher debt balances and getting smashed by the rising interest rate risk. And we'll probably touch on that a little bit later. But we feel that's probably a little bit of an overreaction. The, The other parts we've seen is the third biggest crypto puke of all time in terms of realized losses. People took them in June and said, I'm gonna take my cash off the table uh, or bring it back into cash rather, I'm selling my coins and bring it back to USD or AUD or whatever they've purchased in or out of. And it did feel particularly that there was so much cash being withdrawn from all asset classes. You had bonds, real estate started to come off, as we know, equities have been hit quite heavily in the, the worst first half of a year and half a century. Crypto wasn't didn't exist half a century ago, but that's been hit as well. And it did feel that there's been a lot of AUD in the USD and, and a lot of other currencies just sitting idle in cash. Inflation is now kicked up and looks like it's here to stay. People are now saying, well, I, I can't just keep putting it under the mattress or putting it in a term deposit. I need to go back into something, which is probably where we've seen the reversal in July in terms of flows, money coming back in, uh, and and all boats being lifted, if you like.
0: And I mean, that's like private investors will be thinking, well, I've got to put my assets to work. But for fund managers who are down in the first half of the year, if they don't get going the second half of the year, they're going to face redemption. So there's sort of a almost an existential occupational risk for them not to start allocating capital because if they're just sitting on too high a cash and they're down in the first
1: half, their their jobs are potentially gone. For sure. It's something that we worry about a lot here from a firm level. Uh, how we operate our business and and how robust is what we do against our peers. You'll see funds that go along their life cycles, if you like, uh, get to the seven and 10 year mark and then start to play off where we're holding cash for the next crash. We're holding cash for the next opportunity. We're holding cash for the next pivot or catalyst in the market cycle, or sometimes worse. They then get addicted or hooked to companies where they say, I've met the guys, and girls at the team, they're really great. I've seen the factory. I've seen the the business model. The stock price is cheap. We've got 15% of the fund in it. We've got 30% of the fund in it. And as you know, Chris, we've talked about before, the, the economy and and the market aren't always correlated and they're not always the same and reflective of each other. That can be where you start to lose a bit of your... Uh, life cycle as a fund manager and again as you said redemptions there's going to be a few people looking at their tax returns this year at the end of June uh, in Oz and then again in December in other countries as well starting to say "What? why do I pay you guys to, to run this money for me uh, and something that we've sort of tried to hedge out in our business model by using a, a quantitative style robust framework approach we don't get addicted to companies we don't have a favourite every business we hold is equally weighted as best we can as you know prices fluctuate but Uh, Each business is about 3% of our book, and and we're not going to change that uh, for for anyone that comes along. So uh, we feel we're in a good position at the moment.
0: And what sort of work have you done on the Russia-Ukraine conflict? That's obviously been a a huge headline grabber and a huge macro event this year. What sort of work have you done on that, and how are you seeing the the potential outcomes from
1: that going forward? It's an interesting one for us. We talk to, obviously, other fundies, asset consultants, and, and there's some bright people in our network, including yourself, that this war feels particularly likely to go a a duration length uh, of two to five years, something like that. It doesn't feel as if it's likely to break out and become global World War III at this point in time. Russia may continue to push towards the the borders of Poland and Romania and things of that nature and bring war to NATO's door, but it doesn't seem like at this point. It feels like it's going to be a controlled conflict for some time. They're recognising certain regions that they want uh, or, or don't want and push back on that. Uh, but the the catalyst for that for us is well when is this going to end it's quite binary when do they sign a peace treaty or a ceasefire and what does that mean for for energy prices and flows into the region for fertilizers uh, obviously food I know we've talked about before um, not just food in the developed world but in the developing world and where they have to choose between each night whether they heat their homes or feed their family inflation pressures on food and, and heating hurting both sides of that equation at the moment which is terrible uh, and there's large-scale ramifications the sooner that war can sort of be reeled in the better doesn't feel like it's going to be any time t- too soon but um, there's examples anecdotally that we've heard uh, countries like estonia for example struggling for lng imports they're bringing in gas by a ship rather than usually it's a pipeline um, and that's driving up costs people need to heat their homes it's not the warmest part of the world up there and those costs are then taking budgets away from Entertainment, going to the movies, spending it at a restaurant, spending it on the mortgage, and then obviously more locally, we're seeing interest rate problems here, um, continuing from the inflation risk that this Russian war has helped promote. Inflation wasn't just Russia's fault; it's primarily from COVID and the, the back end of that. But it hasn't, there certainly hasn't helped um, the rates that we're seeing at the moment. And even if the war would end
0: tomorrow, I still struggle to see Europe saying, "Well, let's load up on Russian gas again and become." More dependent on someone uh, like Putin, so uh, there's just a real shortfall, isn't there? I mean, you know, nuclear we know takes ten years to build new facilities. We know wind and solar and intermittent sources haven't produced the levels of energy that were promised, um, and even gas infrastructure is is incredibly costly and and expensive to build new LNG facilities and takes time. So I mean, it's hard not to see thermal coal being a really big stopgap for at least. 18 months, two years. I mean, I think the market's discounting $400 a tonne US thermal coal, that it's not going to be around for, for long, given the value they're ascribing to the, the thermal coal companies. But it, it's hard to see another answer for the next 18 to 24 months. Is that fair?
1: That's definitely fair. Uh, my estimate personally would be possibly longer. Uh, it feels like we've got the Biden administration. They were voted in on a, a green-backed policy that uh, is quite liberal in nature. They don't want to re-engage in fracking and things of that nature, which the break-even cost used to be about $80 a barrel, possibly $85 now, with labour costs and whatnot going up. As you've mentioned, there's the, the turn-on cost of those big plants. There's the shutdown cost if oil suddenly plunges. They're worried about that. They want to see a few quarters in a row where oil stays above 85 at least, if not 90 or 95 or 100 before they feel comfortable turning those projects on. LNG, similar issues, exploratory problems, hit and miss, capturing it's a pain, transporting it's even harder, pipeline and security of pipelines has been called into question, obviously, with the Russia issue in Europe, but it'll be something globally, people will be thinking about that you've got these giant pipelines, but all of a sudden, if war breaks out a bit more regionally, or even globally, you have to defend those pipelines, that's a pain, and a cost and an insurance risk. Um, And then you've got, again, back to Biden, that, that green leaning policy, let's go do electric cars, how do you fuel them all? Uh, on the grid and whatnot, he's been to OPEC and, and asked for their guidance and to sort of flood the market with oil post the Russia problem. They've effectively said no, which is why we're seeing oil at the rate it's at. Again, you can't turn fracking on. We need to get green cars going. There's a lot of mining companies that are going to be needed to not only go and find those rare minerals that make these batteries, but then also all the infrastructure and oil and gas that powers all those trucks until we get to these green trucks self-driving trucks this this utopian future it doesn't feel like it's going to happen anytime soon um, and possibly i think with the friction going up the moment extended that that horizon possibly even further there was a, a lady
0: who spoke at diggers and dealers and she's, she's quite brilliant i think she's in the named in the top 100 most influential people in mining and it was a bit of a somber speech for, for diggers where, you know, it's full of brokers promoting the next big thing. But she said, she talked through the last recession and how much commodity prices got smacked. And, you know, thinking about that period, the last, you know, the GFC came at a time when you just had a huge amount of money pumped in to new commodity supply, trying to, um, you know, fill the boom in in China and, and their thirst for commodities. This cycle is a bit different that you just haven't seen that level of CapEx going into new mining projects. Clearly, a global recession is, you know, it leads to softer commodity prices. But do you think there's a danger people can get stuck always just fighting the last war when, you know, each recession
1: does have some differences? Yes, yeah, certainly. History doesn't always repeat itself. It always sounds quite similar, and looks quite similar, but they're definitely not the same. The GFC, as you've said, It was a perfect storm here of the the slowdown in Chinese exports, as well as the financial issues that we had more more globally. This one doesn't feel the same in terms of recession, in terms of technical risk on the basis that, sure, there might be slowdowns in GDP and slowdowns possibly in earnings. We'll see that through the back end of August. Um, At the time of filming, the RBA hasn't come out with today's decision. We're yet to see that and the impacts that'll have. I know we've talked about zombie companies before, and where those employees of those zombie companies might go, uh, should they be laid off or the business shuts down. But at the moment, the labour market here feels quite strong. There's plenty of surplus jobs, some in alternative industries, uh, hospitality still getting smashed and whatnot. The ability for people to, in a traditional recession, lose their job, can't find another one, stop paying their mortgage, they have to move back in with mum and dad, brother, whatever, the kids are out of school, and the, the terrible side that you see from recessions doesn't feel as prominent as... Time's gone past. Whereas this cycle, it feels like people still continue to be able to re job quite quickly, continue paying their bills, and again, keep demand on local construction, uh, construction of apartment buildings, whatnot. Where we're looking a little bit more globally, problems for Australia and especially in mining, there's been a 40% decline in acceptance of new homes in China. There's been frustrations with delays, uh, completion, talent, and, and construction. Build. People are now saying, I don't want to live in a a dodgy apartment that's been scrapped together. I want something built with a bit more standards. Those frictions will take time to flow through the architects, the engineers, which will eventually fall into the construction bucket. I think it's all going to be a perfect storm for mining at the moment. We've seen their prices come off. The fund has picked up a few of those businesses that we feel are extremely cheap, um, none of which we're going to touch on today. We've got a few consumer cyclicals later. But interesting time for mining in Australia, I think, to Slow down, hold a bit of inventory where you store it. it's a bit of a problem. Um, get the right labours in place, structures in place. Uh, obviously, your governance, taxation, accounting, getting all that nice and order um, for the eventual recovery that's two to three years away. Probably favors the bigger end of the mining towns that have the cash balance to survive two to three years, unless the speculative mining companies that are on the back end and maybe on their last legs looking for more financing. But if you can survive the next two to three years of a slowdown, if you like, maybe not a full blown recession, uh, Australian miners are in for a really good 10 years. And talk to me about
0: Australia and, and our employment and, and inflation. Our inflation numbers haven't been nearly as high as a lot of uh, parts in, in the world. That's still pretty painful for, for many. What are you seeing there and, and how bad do you think our inflation numbers will
1: get? Yeah, it's been an interesting point. The RBA guidance, again, has been misconstrued a lot in the media. And we've seen that a lot, that they they said they wouldn't raise rates for four years and things of that nature. And and that wasn't true when you go into the full depth of of the articles. They said we would based on current conditions. Conditions evolve. Maybe the RBA shouldn't have given guidance that far out. Um, They have been exceptional at giving six and 12 month guidance. But as you know, economic forecasts greater than 12 months get very hazy very quickly. And it's something that, our labour market at the moment is quite strong. The recession might be a recession in technical terms, as we discussed earlier. People will be able to rejob if they're laid off. It may not be as bad as it, it seems. I do worry about wage inflation, actually, with businesses not able to find staff being forced to now hire for higher wages, uh, which is probably a good thing for workers, but not too good for earnings. Where the recession may carry on for a little while, maybe it's three or four quarters, but nowhere near as bad as we've seen in the past. Uh, by comparable the concern being if interest rates continue to carry all the way up to 3.35 that's going to place I believe 1 million Australian homes that have never seen an interest rate rise who have this year for the first time ever if they're on a fixed term mortgage of about 2% 1.92 or 2.1 they're looking to possibly refi at 5.5 or 6. The average carrying balance of a mortgage Australian-wide 600,000 at 2%, that's about $12,000 in interest expense per annum, very manageable. If you're putting $20,000, $25,000 into your mortgage, um, you're looking at paying down yeah, $12,000, $15,000 in principal a year. All of a sudden, at 6%, your interest expense is $36,000, and you're paying $25,000 off your mortgage. Your mortgage is now starting to go backwards. So we're worried about whether the inflation rate, uh, the inflation rate can be contained by the RBA coming out strong, coming out early and not being forced to go all the way through to 3.35, uh, all things considered. Interesting is going to be the earnings at Christmas season, what what people are still willing to spend on their families when their budgets are starting to get a little bit tighter. I think the wage inflation is an interesting one because, you know, I think
0: we desperately need that wage inflation and for, for society and for particularly in Australia, house prices to, to moderate or soften so that we don't live in a world where only you know, rich kids or 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 footy players can afford to buy houses. Um, and the issue with wage inflation at the minute, though, is we, we don't have real wage inflation. You know, real wages, are, they're going backwards because whilst wages are going up, they're still not keeping up with inflation. So you, you're still not solving the problem. It's sort of misguided the the way the RBA sprout off that the workers are getting higher wages. Well, they're getting smacked on oil, they're getting smacked on food and everything else. So they're keeping less and less of of the wages even if it's higher than what they were originally getting 12 months ago do you think that's sort of something that doesn't get touched on enough
1: definitely does there was an interesting article that would have been five or six years ago now I would have to dig it up and flick it through to you but what it did it assessed middle income wage earnings earnings growth property prices and interest rates and they're all correlated to each other And the argument goes, and we see a lot in social media at the moment, I had it harder than you guys because when we bought a house, interest rates were 17%. That was true, but the principal cost was far lower. And then now you've got principal costs that are far higher. Interest expenses were far lower over the the length of the 30-year mortgage. Again, that interest expenses and burden is now going up. But in aggregate, what it was getting at is that the total repayment purchase amount, the purchase amount and the repayment amount you were paying per month, was a proportion of the median income. And as long as you were sitting within a certain band, people could live and exist, paying their mortgage, say they earned $1,000 a week, they were putting $300 towards the mortgage or $350. And life was pretty comfy because you could still go to the footy on the weekends, you could take the wife out to dinner, take the kids to a movie, pay your car repayment, pay your insurance, and life was hunky-dory, maybe a holiday house if you're working two jobs. What we're seeing now from 2018 to 2021, the employment figures are up. Above full-time employment has grown by about eight percent. Part-time employment has grown by twelve percent. But we've had such a departure of people leaving during COVID to go home, and they're yet to return. So that data seems to indicate that there's more people working now, either two jobs or more hours than they were previously. They've moved across to full-time work where they were previously working part-time. The notion that um, yeah, you can just get by on a, a single-income family household isn't really true for most people anymore. And again, the total value, the interest cost, and then dividing that by the median income has got more difficult over the last 30 years um, and certainly feels like it's going to
0: get worse over the next two to three years. And you've sort of made your fun by capitalising on movements in stocks that go too far in either direction as a result of, you know, event-driven scenarios, how do you look at that sort of perpetual worry that there is, particularly in you know financial media and, and markets? Um, you know, do you think that's getting stronger than perhaps it was
1: a generation ago? And do you think that that just keeps opening up new opportunities for you? It certainly does. The journalism cycle is something we keep a bit of a finger on the heartbeat of. We joke internally that we see articles about recessions and things of that nature when there's nothing else to write about. As you know, we've heard articles about COVID. We've seen articles about the Russian war, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the moment, it's, oh, when's the next recession coming? Recessions and pullbacks in the stock market are actually correlated about 50-50. Uh, every bear market that's happened in history, only just over half, I think it's 51 or 52%, have led have ended up becoming a recession. It's not always the case. The market's gone back up nearly 10% last month. You'd argue we're out of bear market territory already. And again, back to that earlier point that markets and the economics of it all aren't always aligned either. But where we see it's quite interesting is that you've got these pullbacks, you've seen the, the, the bear market pullback, you've seen people fly to the, the cash on the sidelines. We felt that there was a bit of an overcorrection. We've purchased some good companies at low valuations and we're looking to see some of them bounce back now uh, quite heavily.
0: And how have you felt about Aussie reporting season? It's probably been pretty strong, really. The US one's been a little bit soft, but so far our results have, have been strong. How have you seen
1: it? Uh, We've seen it okay so far. Again, we're not a business that gets involved with going and seeing factories, meeting management and things of that nature. But we do have fundy peers that we talk to that that are. COVID has been a bit of an issue in terms of obviously transport and getting around with border lockdowns and whatnot, actually seeing the factories and, and problems in person. Supply chain issues remain an issue for everyone. Uh, used cars and new cars me, a great example. I believe Toyota's out to two and a half, three years in wait time for some of their product lines. Unbelievable. Uh, where you used to go into a car dealership, slap down a deposit. And, and if you were having a really bad time, you'd wait three months. Now you're waiting two and a half years. The older end of the market, the SMSF landscape that we talked to, have shifted away from going on a cruise to Europe, going on a cruise through uh, other parts of the world to now saying, right, we're happy to buy a caravan and a nice car travel around Oz or maybe put some money into the top end, Darwin, Cairns, Queensland, things of that nature. Maybe even Kalgoorlie if you plug diggers and dealers hard enough during this show. But, um, yeah, it's been an interesting one for us, just back to the earlier point, perpetual worry in financial markets. We spent the back end of 2019 at the fund. Donald Trump was going to ruin the world. Donald Trump was going to send out a nuke. Recessions incoming. The yield curve inversion happened. And then they were all recession indicators. They were all problems for the economy. None of that eventuated until COVID happened, which was arguably not related to any of those points. Uh, That was a complete unknown unknown. For us, we feel earnings are consistent for businesses that are able to pass on their costs and and have a solid, um, inelastic purchasing uh, base. Businesses that sell products that we need, thinking Woolworths, West Farmers, things of that nature. Where it's going to be a bit more interesting is consumer cyclicals heading into Christmas if and when these RBA rate hike hikes continue to come, where people decide to cut their um, expenditure, will it be at the restaurant? Will it be at the JB Hi-Fi? Will it be at the movie theater? Uh, time will tell, which is quite interesting. And where do you think Aussie rates will get to? For us, it feels that the RBA had to come out quite aggressively as the umpire and say, enough is enough. We've been in emergency settings for too long. The 75 basis point rate hike really put that on the table saying that we're serious the 50 and 50s i think need to continue until there's some moderation in obviously construction spending you can actually start to see a slowdown in the economy a little bit um, and and starting to pull that inflation back into line terminal rate generally speaking the the fund futures market has always overshot what actually happens they're estimating 3.35 i think it might even be up by 3.5 now I don't think it needs to get to that high. 3.5% means that the average punter in the country is paying 6% on their mortgage. The APRA regulations have stress tested for 200, 250 basis points. They're now testing for 300. I don't think it needs to get that high. I don't think your average Australian can afford 6% per annum on a a 600,000 average carrying mortgage without collapsing the entire housing market. The RBA doesn't want to collapse the housing market. They just want to get inflation back under control. The other point is people say, well, the RBA has an inflation target of 2% to 3%. That is true, but that's over the long term. They're not concerned with getting it back to 2 to 3% tomorrow. They might be willing to let it sit at 4% or 5% and 6% for a little while, given we've had zeros and ones for so long, to bring that average band back into line. The dark horse of all that. As we talked about about ten minutes ago, if Russia does sign a peace treaty tomorrow and comes back in and joins NATO and they all out holding hands, I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does and energy goes back to normal, all of a sudden the inflation starts to pull back quite quickly. Petrol prices come back to a dollar fifty, maybe a dollar forty or a dollar thirty. All of a sudden, your average middle-income family has a little bit more money to go out for a restaurant or dinner and whatnot, and life looks a little bit more rosy. That's probably where I think the RBA will need to settle, 2.6, 2.75, something around that, uh, before moderating for maybe a, a quarter or two, seeing where the impacts come through, and then maybe deciding to do more. Their biggest risk at the moment is if they do too much too quickly and throw the whole country into a recession after we've just had COVID, is getting smashed. I think beer pint prices are going up to $15 a pop. That was on Channel 9 yesterday. New taxes coming through. Um, they, the impacts and the choices that they make are huge and take two to three quarters to flow through. They're going to need time to assess that um, before doing anything further. So it feels like a, a carry on for a little bit, pause for some time, see if they've hit the mark and then maybe trim a, cut a, add a little bit more rates to trim a little bit more off inflation then. The rate of
0: change of interest rate rises around the world has been just incredibly sharp at, at a time when there's more debt than ever in the system. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And in the states, it almost feels like it's just pushing so hard to get them up so they can drop them um, when when they need to for the next crisis. Because um, you know it's pretty hard to intervene when they're you know already under one percent. Talk to me about um, talk about which companies you want to, to zip through.
1: Yeah, sure. So we've got three businesses to get through today. Uh, Again, we kind of keep it at quite a high level. Um, So we've got Metcash, Costa Group, and Webjet. Starting off with Metcash, um, currently sitting at about four dollars and sixteen cents last night. We think that's a good buy at the moment. We're we're looking. We currently hold that, full disclosure, uh, and are looking to get out of that four dollars twenty-eight. So making about two, two and a half percent on that trade uh, internally over the next month or two. Should well in a high inflation environment, those those sorts of businesses feels like it, the the further moderation and and what they're helping with supply chains, getting people back on track, it's gonna be interesting over the next year or two. Again, noting that we're not gonna hold it for that long, but certainly where we see the opportunity, Uh, Costa Group's another one that we're looking at sitting at $2.54 last night, uh, Aussie Avocado Growers, and they do a few other bits and pieces. I think we've talked about them once before. Um, So we're sitting there at the moment. We don't own that at the moment. We're still tracking that. Um, We have a buy price slightly under that, but we'd be looking to get out about $2.62, yield of about 4% on that trade, what we're we're anticipating for that. Uh, And then the third one for us is Webjet. Obviously struggling at the moment with airline prices and strikes and things of that nature going on, but the opportunities, then possibly their longer term cash flows and, and what's yet to be realised. Um, so we are not in them at the moment. We do have a target buy price significantly lower than what it's sitting at the moment, but looking out to get at $5.20. Uh, again, about a 5% yield on that one we're, we're targeting. Awesome. Nick Quinn, thanks
0: very much for, uh, for coming back on, mate. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan. Who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.